This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. Ray here. Before we jump into East Africa, I deem it best that we establish our mental map from the start. If you will, please picture a triangle with a small flat top that has been slightly turned to the left. Thus tilted, the top of the triangle is touching southern Sudan, where General Platt's forces will cross over, heading east, and make for Eritrea and northern Abyssinia. Now, go down the left side of the triangle just a bit, and that's where Wingate will attempt to cross into Abyssinia from the Sudan and lead Emperor Haile Selassie to Mount Balea, of the Gajam region in northwestern Abyssinia. And lastly, if you continue all the way down on the left-hand side of our triangle, that's where General Cunningham, stationed in northern Kenya, will cross the River Tana, head northeast, and make for Kismayu at the mouth of the River Juba, along the coast of Italian Somaliland. I hope all that made sense, but if it did not, just glance at a map of East Africa. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 79, East Africa. Mussolini once called Italian East Africa a pearl of fascist regime. He was referring to the area of Abyssinia, or Ethiopia, once it was joined to Italian Somaliland and Eritrea. And by 1939, his pearl was being administered by Prince Amadeo of Savoy, Duke of Aosta, the 41-year-old cousin of the King of Italy. But as Mussolini's declaration of war on the Allies was not supported by concrete plans and secret preparative communications, the Duke was caught completely off guard. So he flew to Rome to ask for reinforcements. The British were sure to come his way. After all, part of his territory lay right beside Britain's all-important sea route from the Suez to the Cape of Good Hope, as well as a part of the path to India. And right there, along that route, where Churchill certainly didn't need them, at the port of Masawa in Eritrea, were nine Italian destroyers, eight submarines, and other support craft. Yes, the British were sure to come. But over time, as the first phase of the war unfolded, East Africa became even more vital to the British Prime Minister. As France was taken out of the war, and London and southern Britain subjected to daily and nightly bombings, supplies from the United States were paramount as the island nation geared up for war. But as the German wolf packs were in operation around the British Isle, it was deemed best for American goods, destined for the Middle East, or the Eastern Mediterranean, as well as East Africa, to go around the African continent and through the Suez. But wrecking this alternative route was Italy, as it took possession of British Somaliland. 
U.S. President Roosevelt had no choice but to declare the Red Sea a combat zone, and no American ships were allowed to travel through it. If Churchill wanted American goods for his war against the weaker access partner, that sea lane and the land touching it had to be cleared. As France battled out of the war and the Franco-British tension mounted, the Duke of Osta seemed to be in an unstoppable position. Altogether, he had 250,000 troops, 323 aircraft, 60 tanks, and 100 armored cars. Against this, the British could only muster 40,000 troops, with about 100 aircraft spread around the borders of the Sudan, Kenya, and British Somaliland before it was conquered. But most hurtful for the British in regards to long-term planning was when the Italian military changed its high-grade cipher codes in late summer. After that, information from British intelligence was at best spotty and vague about Italian intentions and detailed movements. During the late summer, early fall of 1940, the British were worried and helpless about an Italian invasion into the Sudan or Kenya. But, much like in North Africa, when one looked closer at the Italian military machine in East Africa, the more it resembled a paper tiger. First of all, 70% of the Italian forces were locally raised, and their organization, and quite frankly, loyalty, were based on tribal lines. Again, a large number of that 70% were only armed with spears and long knives. And lastly, when the local troops decided to be unruly, which was, as often as not, these men were in equal danger to the Italian officers and NCOs as to Italy's enemies. On the material side of the equation, many of the Duke's aircraft needed repairs, but didn't have the necessary parts. This was typical of the pilot's support staff, which was equally unprofessional. But the most telling point was the complete lack of coordination between those in the air and other military or support units on the ground. And we have already seen how powerful that combination could be in the German offensive against the French and British air power during the Battle of Britain. As usual, the Italian military's core was its artillery, but even those honored units suffered. The Italian batteries seemed fierce, but were more toothless than imagined. What with the lack of trucks to move their guns, truck parts to fix those trucks, and of course, limited amounts of ammunition. As Mussolini's declaration of war against the Allies caught the Duke off guard, he had no overall strategic plan. But he needed to act now, as the British were relatively weak in East Africa and focused at home. What probably would have served Italy best would have been a joint venture against Egypt, being simultaneously attacked from the West and the South. But Graziani dithered, as we have seen. So that was out. Another possible move, one that would have several benefits, would be to take Djibouti in French Somaliland. As the superior harbor of the Horn of Africa, it would be invaluable in choking off the Red Sea for the British. Also, having ownership of it would take away from the British a possible base to land and launch a counterattack. However, France was now out of the war 
by the governor there, Paul Le Gentil Homme, was thought to be leaning towards the Free French, and an attack there might push him to ask for British aid. So the downside was seemingly equal to the potential benefits. Probably his last best option would be to take the port of Mombasa in Kenya. Denying this deep water port to the British would have struck them a hard blow in the war of East Africa and also threaten South Africa. But Aosta, thinking these three options round and round, decided on none of them. Instead, he contented himself with taking three British outposts along the Sudanese border, pushing the British out of a small part of a desert patch in northern Kenya, and taking British Somaliland, mostly to give the enemy one less jumping-off point in their attempt to invade his territory. After that, he mostly dithered. But if Aosta was stumped, so too were the British, in coming up with a starting-off point to begin the arduous task of retaking East Africa. Kenya and the Sudan were poor choices, as no logistical basis already existed. The British would have to start at ground zero. Djibouti was equally out, as no one in London wanted to further antagonize Vichy. The best the British could do for now would be to foment rebellion among the various conquered tribes and peoples. But in November of 1940, the British got a big break when Bletchley Park broke the Italians' newest high-grade cipher. Soon, select members at Whitehall, as well as certain British officers, were getting the Duke's daily situation reports sent to Rome just as quickly as the Italian general staff. As we covered during the episode on Tobruk, the plans of Wavell's commanders in East Africa were ruined when the Duke of Aosta decided to withdraw his troops to safer ground after the stunning victories of the British Commonwealth forces in North Africa, or rather, the stunning defeats of the Italian forces in North Africa. Instead of timetables and cables to Wavell, in East Africa, it was time to move. Lieutenant General William Platt, responsible for the northern theater of the war there, got word from Bletchley Park in mid-January that the Italian troops around Kassala, just inside the Sudanese border near northern Eritrea, were withdrawing. Having the decision taken from his hands, he was forced to launch his own offensive January 19th, although his air force and support units were not in place. Units from the veteran 4th Indian and the still green 5th Indian divisions moved out. Most would head into Eritrea, but others would make for northern Abyssinia, protecting the former's right flank. Just to the south of the Indian divisions was Lieutenant Colonel Ord Wingate in what was considered the western part of the theater. He moved out the next day, January 20th, to find a safe path for Emperor Haile Selassie to reach Mount Balea in the Gajam region of northwestern Abyssinia, the emperor's initial base for the Patriot Revolt. Accompanying Wingate was a part of Force Gideon, made up from the Frontier Force Battalion of the Sudanese Defense Force, Sudanese Regular Troops, and the 2nd Ethiopian Battalion of Abyssinian Exiles. The remainder stayed with the Emperor. To the southeast of Wingate, in northern Kenya, was Lieutenant General Cunningham's forces. 
Italian forces had earlier left the area after pushing the British out of the desert in northeast Kenya, but were still entrenched in western Italian Somaliland. So, leaving Nairobi behind, Cunningham's forces of the 12th African Division, made up of the 22nd East African and 24th Gold Coast Divisions, and being led by Major General Godwin Austin, crossed the River of Tana and started making their way through the bush. Their goal was Kismayu, a coastal port city in southern Italian Somaliland. But to fool the Duke of Osta, Cunningham also had another force head north and feign an attack pointed at southern Abyssinia. The 2nd and 5th Brigades of the 1st South African Division, along with the 25th East African Brigade, would start north, but then, close to the border, turn right and make for the River Juba, at whose mouth lay Kismayu. The Duke of Osta received troop movement reports as they came in about his own men and the Allied forces, and then stared at his map. He believed he spotted the overall Allied plan and conjured up his response to bring this to a stop. Clearly, the Allies were coming at him from multiple angles, with the idea of meeting up at Adidas Ababa in central Abyssinia. Simple, but effective. To combat this strategy, the Duke gave General Luigi Fruschi three colonial divisions, along with three colonial brigades, and ordered him to stop General Platt from entering Eritrea. And because the Duke trusted Fruski's competence, the General was also given three colonial brigades and five blackshirt battalions to cover Galabat in eastern Sudan, which, if taken, would lead the Allies to northern Abyssinia. Next, General Guglielmo Nasi was ordered to stop Lieutenant Colonel Wingate from entering the Gajem region with four colonial brigades. If the Allies could make it that far, they would be the closest to the capital, Addis Ababa, and only need to continue in a straight southeasterly line. And finally, to the south, General Carlo Di Simone had ten colonial brigades to hold back Cunningham from southern Abyssinia and western Italian Somaliland. Besides the forces mentioned, each Italian general had a certain number of irregular native bands at his disposal. But in reserve at Addis Ababa and Harar, the Duke stationed his two best divisions, the Savoa and African, respectively, and they would be needed sooner than the Duke thought possible. On January 18th, an Arab, riding a white donkey, rode to the British line from the direction of Kassala. He asked the soldier in front of him, gun pointed and bayonet fixed, if he would give his commander a note. The paper eventually made it to General Platt that evening. It read, From the mayor of Kassala, please enter Kassala with your forces immediately. The Italians are retreating. Platt had already decided to send his Indian divisions forward, but this, along with his men who were spoiling for a fight, after what they did to the other Italian units at Sidi Barani, was clearly a sign. His men moved out the next day. Beresford Pierce and the 4th Indian moved out and entered Kassala, unopposed. Pushing on in the great chase of Fruski's troops, the division covered another hundred miles and was before the city of Basia. 
As the ground started to rise here, the Italians decided this was a good place to make a stand. Not that they had much of a choice, with the Allied forces on their heels. Straight at the Italian defensive line came the few Matildas the Allied forces had. But this was just a diversion. Platt had his sepoys climb the hills to either side of the Italian center. As they considered these hills unscalable, scouts were not posted. It took five days for enough Indians to make the climb, but when the attack was launched in their front, but also from their rear, the Italians who were surrounded surrendered. The rest ran for the west. Fruski had his forces pull back yet again. Basia was important because it was the end of the railroad that started at the port city of Masawa in Eritrea. Coming inland, it went through Asmara, the colonial capital, then to Karen, then Agordat, and ending at Basia. Keeping to the plan, the 4th Indian Division was on the main road. Their next target was the city Agordat, while the 5th Indian Division traveled on a road parallel to the 4th but further south. The fifth's destination was the city of Barentu. And just as the Allied offensive during Operation Compass gained momentum, so too did the supposedly organized retreat of the Italians, which is why both Angordat and Barentu fell without too much resistance to the forces led by the British. At that point, most of the 5th Division traveled the road north for Angordat, the remainder of the 5th Indian continued to head east to protect the now overstrength 4th Division's right flank, as it continued east as well, along the main road. Their next target was the town of Karen, but Karen would be an altogether different story for the Allied troops. As the 4th Indian raced down the road in pursuit of the fleeing Italians, the ground rose. It kept on rising. And this time, the Italians won the race. By February 1st, the Allies were just five miles from the city of Karen. But in front of them was the formidable Karen escarpment called Asmara Plateau. 2,000 feet above the Indian division was now the guns of the Italian army. And, as luck would have it, this superior position of the Italians dovetailed perfectly with Platt's lack of air power. For now, Fruski and his men were safe. But what frustrated Platt's men the most was that, although the Dongolas Gorge was the only way through the solid rock wall on the path to Asmara, the colonial capital, really it was just the gateway holding them up. Once inside the gorge, their numbers, their few Matildas, and their experienced mountain men would make the difference. It didn't help lessen the pressure on Platt when Wavell sent him a message on February 3rd, as the British forces were still staring at the rock wall in front of them, that congratulated him on the capture of Agordat and Barentu, and finished with, quote, Now go on and take Karen and Asmara, unquote. Easier said than done. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. 
I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination, YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. In Western Abyssinia, things weren't going any better. The reasons were both personal and topographical. The personal reason was the two different views held by Wingate and Sanford. Wingate, younger of the two, was all hard and honestly testicles, to lead exiled Emperor Haile Selassie back to his rightful place. But first, they had to make for Mount Balea, in the Gajam region, where Abyssinian patriots waited. Over and over, the two men clashed about when and through which route the Emperor should travel. General Platt thought he had settled things by making Sanford the Emperor's personal political advisor, with the rank of brigadier, and Wingate to be the military force commander with the rank of lieutenant colonel. So, the fiery Wingate had to report to Sanford. Still believing his way was the best, Wingate was convinced he had everything worked out, and now was the time to move against the Italians. His forces, originally called 101 Mission, purposefully vague, was now designated Gideon by Wingate. Gideon was comprised of the Frontier Force Battalion of the Sudanese Defense Force of regular Sudanese troops and the 2nd Ethiopian Battalion of Abyssinian exiles. Beyond this, he had various and scattered operational centers under British officers and NCOs, whose job it was to raise and assist Patriot forces. Let the locals, who care more about their homes than the British ever could, have a chance to help free it. For transportation, Wingate had a few trucks, but tried to make up for the shortage with 15,000 camels. Of course, the camels he had were meant for carrying packs in the plains, not in the jungle. Realizing this, Wingate also tried to get mules, but the Italians, who had been operating in the area since the mid-1930s, seemed to have confiscated them all. As Platt and Cunningham were moving against the British, Wingate got Sanford's permission to move out. Now ready to take the Emperor to Mount Balea, Wingate didn't chance taking any of the known paths, though the Italians were reportedly retreating, or at the very least, not launching offensives. Wingate, perhaps being too clever by half, decided it was best to pick a straight compass bearing, ignoring landmarks, and traveling right through the bush making for the Gajem region. Surely they wouldn't meet any Italian forces along the way. He was right, but there were other dangers out there besides men with guns. 
Showing a bit of General O'Connor's prudence, Wingate decided to scout on ahead and check the going for himself. At first, things seemed fine, but it wasn't too long before he realized that his maps were off and, in fact, completely missed certain items, like a rather large and treacherous lava belt. Forced to turn back, it wasn't long before Wingate ran into Selassie's party, traveling at a slower pace. But having come this far, Wingate decided it was best to continue on. So he turned back around and led the gruesome march. Through the ravines and escarpments, trucks were abandoned or were soon beyond repair. Many, many camels died along the way, unaccustomed to the land, and besides which, many of the men were not trained in dealing with camels. Soon all the trucks were gone, many camels too, and the emperor was riding one of the few mules Wingate had found. And that's how Emperor Halle Selassie came out of the bush and to his headquarters at Mount Balea on February 6th, filthy, exhausted, and believing a little less in the British on the back of a mule. Meanwhile, further south, General Cunningham had also found that his estimates, the ones he based his plans on for an attack against Italian Somaliland in May or so, were meaningless. Because of the results of Operation Compass, the Italians were now demoralized and thinking only defensively. And as such, perhaps his excursion east to take Kismayu could be done with four instead of six brigades. His engineers were certainly enthused by the prospect of reducing the number of men used for this battle. Their hope of finding adequate water along the route was not panning out. Oh, there was water between the River Tana and the River Juba, where Kismayu was along the coast. But only by reducing the number of men used, carrying as much water as they could, and taking Kismayu by the tenth day of the march was the only way the engineers could guarantee enough water for the men. So, as Cunningham worked on his plans, the 4th Indian Division was considering how to open the pass before them, and Wingate was traveling through the bush. General Smoots of South Africa, without meaning any harm, again offered up a 2nd South African Division. For Wavell, whose situation hadn't changed since the first offer, asked that the decision not be made yet and that he would fly to Kenya to see things for himself. What he needed, again, were transport and logistic units to strengthen the punching power of his current fighting units, not another force he couldn't move or supply. So, despite his ongoing negotiations with Greece and being fully engaged with O'Connor in North Africa, Wavell flew south in late January. Of course, Churchill found out about this latest offer and blasted Wavell in a cable on January 26th. Quote, How can you expect me to face the tremendous strain upon our shipping, affecting as it does all our food and import of munitions, in order to carry more divisions from this country to the Middle East, when you seem opposed to taking a South African division? which would only have less than half the distance to come, unquote. And Wavell, probably happily leaving a response for that for later, arrived in Nairobi on January 28th. 
It was then that Cunningham told him of his change of plans and would, in fact, advance on February 11th instead of sometime in May. Wavell, feeling the pressure of the latest message breathing down his neck, was more than happy to approve the plan. As we mentioned in the last episode, Wavell and O'Connor were delighted with the outcome of Operation Compass thus far and needed everything to remain relatively calm so they could continue on against the Italians. Added to that list was now Platt, Sanford, Wingate, and Cunningham, as they had their own plans ready to put in motion. But fate indifferently declined on their wishes. On February 8th, Greek Prime Minister Metexas died. The new Greek government asked Churchill, could there be another discussion about the size of a British force sent to Greece if the Germans marched into Bulgaria? To be clear, the Greeks only wanted a discussion. Churchill, however, embraced this request. The Prime Minister saw his chance to have things go his way for once and bounded into action. He quickly crushed all opponents at home led discussions about the use of British forces now that Egypt was safe, and resolutely steered the British cause towards Greece. And in doing so, in not finishing off Italy in North Africa, thereby allowed a German foothold to be purchased in Tripoli. And at the time, Germany had the resources to exploit it. And what did the Prime Minister get in exchange? A toehold in Greece one that the British at the time could not even hope to exploit. How were four divisions of British Commonwealth forces supposed to turn back the Blitzkrieg when it came to Greece, powered, as it were, by the 18 divisions of General List? Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, if it's okay with everyone, I'm going to leave the thanking uh, the newest members and those who donated for the next episode. I just wanted to hurry up and get this out, even though I know it's extremely late. On uh, June the 19th, I'll be doing one of those uh, little chatty things on uh, reddit.com uh, starting at noon Eastern Standard Time. So um, this is probably going to get to you late, and I apologize for that. I got it out as fast as I can. But um, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, you'll see my little announcements about that. But uh, just know that, again, January 19th, noon Eastern Standard Time, I'll be on Reddit. I'll be there for a couple hours. So come by and say hi if you um, get this in time. And if you don't, it's entirely my fault. Take care, everyone. And I will see you as soon as I can with episode 80.